Acts chapter 13 this morning. I'm not going to sing a song of recap. Um, You'll have to come up with your own. Um, My wife was slightly embarrassed. Um, We had some visitors. The uh, pastor from Lehigh Valley came in, but he came in. They came into Sunday school after I had explained why I was singing a song, but before I sang it. And so they just walked in on the middle of me singing Jingle Bells. And so she, in the middle of the song, felt compelled to turn around and say, we don't do this every week, and last week was camp. And I guess that was a sufficient explanation. So, But last week now was not camp, so there will be no uh, fancy tunes uh, in honor of our pastor. Um, but we will um, talk about... Uh, our missionary journey. Just uh, as a recap, we are in Acts chapter 13, and at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark were sent out out of the church at Antioch in Syria, and uh, they began their journey um, there in Antioch, and they they went down to the port of Seleucia, uh, which is the Syrian port out there in Antioch, just 16 miles from Antioch on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they sailed to Cyprus, and they, they docked first at Salamis, which is in East Cyprus, and then they ventured across over land, uh, 100 and hundred so miles across land, across Cyprus, and ended up in Paphos. And uh, we talked about Paphos and uh, last week, which is where uh, Elymas the sorcerer was, and uh, how Paul. Uh, through the Holy Spirit had made him dumb and he could not speak and how Sergius Paulus had accepted Christ after hearing the witness and the testimony of Paul and Barnabas and we left them uh, on the Isle uh, of Paphos so look at that map on your last page uh, for a second and you can see a little bit uh, of this journey that we followed them from Seleucia down uh, southwest into Cyprus And then from Paphos, you can see it on the western coast of Cyprus, Uh, they are going to head mostly north um, via the Mediterranean Sea, a little bit west, and they are going to end up in, as Acts will tell us here in a second, in Perga. Now on our map, which is very Roman in its naming, it is called Pergo. Um, You will also see sometimes if you were to Google it, um, the King James calls it Perga. Uh, this Roman map calls it Pergo, and then other places call it Perge or P-E-R-G-E, or I'm sure it's not Purge, but you get the idea. And so these are all the same place, and it is inland a little bit in uh, Pamphylia, and it is possible that Luke doesn't record necessarily where they ported. Um, it's possible that they ported at Corcus, which is Atalia, or even um, at Sidae there just on the right of our dashed line, and then made their way to Perga. But Perga, as we'll see here in just a minute, is on a river, and it's possible they could have taken a small boat the 12 miles inland uh, to get there. But pick up with me in Acts chapter uh, 13, beginning in verse number 13, and we'll read a little bit about what we're going to cover uh, this morning. Acts 13, 13, Scripture says this, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came unto uh, to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Uh, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the law and of the synagogue, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. 
And then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. And we'll continue reading that as we get more into uh, Antioch at Pisidia. But as you look at your lesson this morning, um, let's talk about Perga for just a second. It's approximately 180 miles uh, or so of a, uh, of a sail um, from the island of Cyprus on the western coast up to Pamphylia, this southern coast of Asia Minor. And it appears to be that Perga is a capital city of Pamphylia and Italia. You can see that seaport um, down there on the coast of Pamphylia. Pamphylia is kind of a, a little bit of a, a miniature crescent shaped um, region. And we see Corcus and Italia down there uh, on the coast. That would have been more of the actual port. And so it's possible that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark sailed uh, into uh, Italia. In fact, We'll get to this in a few weeks, but later when they, they retrace their steps and they end their missionary journey and they're headed back, they don't sail out of Perga. They sail out of uh, this city, Atalia. But Perga is the capital city of this small uh, region of Pamphylia. Um, all of these places were countries in and of themselves, but at this time now they're under Roman Empire rule. Um, so these are more regions of the Roman Empire, but at a, one point uh, they were independent countries. And of course, as you know, countries in that time, they were countries and they were ruled by all kinds of people. It was whoever was ruling at the time, right? Whoever was traipsing across, whether it was Assyria or Babylon or whoever it was, the Greeks, Alexander the Great uh, in the 300 BC, or as you move into the first century BC, the Roman Empire begins to take over its dominance well into 300 AD. Um, and so right at this time when we're looking at this map, we want to understand that it's under Roman rule. But Perga was a capital city uh, of Pamphylia, um, it was located 12 miles inland on the Sestris River. You can see that uh, on the map there. That Sestris River runs north out of Perga, right through the I and D of Pisidia, and it works its way up um, just a little bit northwest. Um, it's not a very big river, um, but in ancient times, small boats from the sea might reach the city. So it's possible that they disembarked their larger vessel and got on a boat and sailed their way up uh, to Perga. But nevertheless, they ended up in Perga, as Scripture tells us. Um, Pamphylia, the region surrounding Perga, was a narrow strip of low-lying land uh, between the base of the mountains and the sea. It was scarcely more than 20 miles long and half as wide, so 10 by 20 uh, miles uh, long. A high and imposing mountain uh, range of the Taurus Mountains practically surrounds it upon three sides, isolating it from the rest of Asia Minor. And this is interesting to me. We're going to look at this in just a second. Uh, several roads uh, leading from the coast up the steep mountains to the interior uh, existed in ancient times, the main being the Via Sebaster, what we would know as the Imperial Road, which was built uh, by the Romans. Let me explain that for just a second. As the Romans began their conquest, um, there was, of course, uprisings. And in this mountainous region, the Taurus Mountains that surrounded Pamphylia, there were dissonants, dissidents, shall we say, people who were not interested in being uh, under Rome. And so Rome built a road around the top of these mountains in a sense to militarily encapsulate these mountain people who did not want to be under Roman rule. And so this was a military endeavor, and this was, you can actually still walk on this road today uh, as we're going to see in just a second. Let's see, Ben, let's see if this works. 
This is Perga. And do you see the path through the mountains? That was the Via Sebast. This is a very road that Paul and Barnabas likely would have traversed when they left Perga and headed unto Antioch of Pisidia. A typical Roman cobblestone stone road. And to me, as I saw this, the terrain was... I don't know if it was shocking, but it's not exactly what I had envisioned. I get so used to looking at a two-dimensional map that I, I fail to understand the topography. And really the thing that struck out to me was just how arduous this journey must have been. And the sacrifices that were involved in traveling the Via Sebast to get to these cities. Uh, later we'll see Iconium, which was also on the Via Sebast. And so that gives you just a little idea of exactly what it looked like, what this journey was. Uh, we'll see it here in just a second. But the elevation change from Perga uh, when he gets to Antioch and Pisidia, Antioch and Pisidia sits at 3,800 feet. So, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a very significant pass, if you will. It's called Climax Pass here on the Via Sebast. Um, and it's just mind-boggling to me that they, they traverse this on foot, and they, they walked through this. It's, it's a little bit akin to what we might say of Lewis and Clark and, and the journey west through the Oregon Trail, uh, through the Rockies, right, as we understand the wagon trains and things of that nature, um, and just the terrain that they traverse. And you saw uh, the mountain goats just there because those are the animals that could survive in this region. And that was the Via Sebast, the imperial road, uh, which was built by the Romans. Something interesting about uh, Perga, um, just by way of foundation, is it seems to have been built during the Seleucidan period uh, or the 3rd century B.C. Uh, at one point, it was a thriving metropolis, but it began to fall into decay during the 8th century A.D., and it was the seat of local Asiatic goddess uh, Leto, uh, who corresponded to Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. We're familiar with the temple to the goddess Diana, right? Well, here we have a representation, uh, a historically known representation of uh, the goddess Diana in uh, Perga. And so all of that to say that as Paul was traveling these regions and traveling to these cities, he was, of course, uh, dealing with cities steeped in idolatry. But there were also Jewish people there, and there were synagogues. And um, I don't know if there was specifically a synagogue in Perga, but we do know uh, that he would come back and he would preach there. Uh, the ruins of Perga are now called uh, Mertana, and you can actually travel there, and you can see the ruins of Perga. Perga had a stadium. Perga had an amphitheater. Uh, a stadium like a hippodrome where they would do chariot races, right? A big, long oval looks like a racetrack. Um, they had an, an amphitheater, which you can see on a picture of our first page. Um, they had a long promenade, um, a street where everything happened. And you can see, you can go literally walk the ancient ruins uh, of Perga. Um, it's called... Mertana at the point. So what happened biblically in Perga? Look at Acts chapter 13, 13. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So this is the point where John Mark leaves. 
it was a logical place to leave because from there he could just simply head to the coast and get on a vessel and sail back rather than continuing to journey inland up to Antioch or Iconium or Lystra and Derby. And this was a, at least a logical place to leave uh, given its proximity to the Mediterranean. But this abrupt departure would later become a source of contention uh, between Paul and Barnabas. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Perga is the place where John Mark departs uh, this initial journey. Acts chapter 15, uh, verse number 36. After some days, and some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them uh, from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark, Mark excuse me, and sailed on Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, uh, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. Here in Acts chapter 15, Luke records that uh, it was Pamphylia, this region, which is where Perga was, that John Mark leaves. And Luke does not mention them preaching here in Perga until their return trip in Acts 14.25. We'll look at that later. But I want you to think about this. This kind of stood out to me. Um, just some thoughts about Perga as we've studied it geographically. In regards to John Mark, did you know that one decision can set a course for later in life? One, one decision can impact your future. And that's a, that's a heavy thought when you think about it. When you think about the importance of, of each decision that we make, I ought to consider that this one decision influenced John Mark's future. And I, it's with much prayer and seeking of the Lord that I ought to make important decisions in my life. This was an important decision for him to leave, and we don't know specifically why he left. We do know that Paul was not pleased with his leaving. But we don't know the reason why he left. And I'm not here to cast judgment upon John Mark, except to say that one decision can set the course for later in life. But I also want you to notice this. One decision, even if bad, does not doom us to a life of living outside the will of God. We can be used again. Right? The will of God is not just some simply fixed one linear path and that if we were to get off of it, we're never to return from it again. The will of God is a present possession, and at any point in my life, I can get back into the will of God and from there follow the Lord. Does that make sense? I, can't, I don't have to go back to some place in my life where I feel like I veered from that very, his mercies are new every morning. And so though John made perhaps what Paul might consider a bad decision, it did not doom him to a life of living outside the will of God. And he could be used of God again, and we saw that in Acts chapter 15. So I'm encouraged... Uh, to consider the seriousness of each decision that I make, but also understand that if I make a mistake, that I can still be used of God when I make things right. And I'm encouraged by the testimony of John Mark and by Barnabas in encouraging, continuing to encourage John Mark. And so we travel north. We travel north through uh, Pamphylia, from Perga and Pamphylia, and Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, look at verse number 14. They are going to head up to Antioch of Pisidia. 
But when they had departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue and on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the law and of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any words of exhortation for the people, uh, say on. So we head up to Antioch. We've gone from Antioch in Syria, and now we've made our way to Antioch in Pisidia. Um, sometimes you will read it in literature, or if you were to Google it, you will recall it, see it called Pisidian Antioch. This was just a, denomina- uh, a, a convention to identify which Antioch. Um, I think I, I mentioned it later. Yeah, under historical facts, one of 16 Antiochs built by Alexander the Great's geni- general, Seleucus Nicator. So one of the reasons we identify them geographically is because there were 16 of them named after his father. I guess... His father had the most, we talked about this last week, his father had the most named after him. He must have really loved his dad. Um, but there were 16 Antiochs. The two that we really talk about are this one, Antioch and Pisidia, and the main one, Antioch in Syria. Um, some scholars claim uh, that it could be more aptly described as the city of Phrygia near Pisidia, uh, thus being in the region mentioned in Acts chapter 16. Look at Acts chapter 16 for just a second. In Acts chapter 16, verse number 6, and also in 18.23, but in 16.6, Luke says this under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, uh, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia uh, and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, uh, Luke says that they had been in Phrygia. um, And if you look at the placement on your map of Antioch and Pisidia, you will notice that it is right north at the northern tip of what this map l- l- marks the borders of Pisidia. And you can't see it on a map because I had to shrink it down. But just to the north of that is Phrygia. And so sometimes you'll see it described as Antioch of Pisidia near Phrygia, right? Or Antioch uh, near Phrygia, near Pisidia, sorry, in Phrygia. And so all of these things, it probably depends on... I mean, it's like Texarkana. How do you describe that? It depends on which portion you're standing in, right? I mean, where the corner of Utah, uh, Arizona, and Nevada come together. I was watching a a video about something that had happened uh, way out in the middle of nowhere in Utah. It was in the corner of the state. But the closest sheriff's department was from Nevada, closer than the closest one in the county in Utah. And, and we can understand that a little bit, just how these regions would kind of mix together near the borders. I mean, we have it here with our tri-county, right? Or the tri-cities, right? When we get down into Kentucky, and then you can very easily hop into Indiana and here in Ohio. And, and people who live one place work in the other place and do all that same stuff. And so you have this place. And so some scholars think that when Luke is talking in Acts chapter 16, 6, he's talking about this region, this region of Phrygia, or this main city of Antioch, or Antiocha as it's described on our map. This place was on a plateau close to the western bank of the river Antheos, which flows down from the Sultan, the Sultan Dog, sorry, to the double lake called Limni. You can see that double lake on our map right below our underline of Antioch. There's a kind of a two-section lake right there um, that it flows, uh, the water flows down from the mountains. Um, remember, this is up on a plateau in the, in the Taurus mountain range. It is 3,800 feet above sea level, which is, it blows my mind 
that they walked that far and they traversed all of that elevation. Now, there was a road cut through by the Romans, uh, but still, this was not an easy journey, and they made it. It was about 150 miles from Perga, so if you consider uh, 25 to 30 miles a day, uh, you can do the math about how long it takes them to get there, but when you consider the elevation, I'm sure their time of travel was hindered, and so it took them quite a while, a few days to get there, and it, it's, it's very close to the Mediterranean, when you look at it on a map, uh, but the weather is not Mediterranean-like. Because of the elevation of the Taurus mountain range, uh, the weather and the climate, um, that weather changes when it goes over mountain pass. We don't necessarily experience that here too much because uh, we don't have a lot of elevation, but if you live in other parts of our country, you will experience how, like we lived in Seattle, which is it's not exactly coastal, but there's the Puget Sound there. And so even though we're very far north, it does not snow a lot. It might snow maybe a foot a year scattered over I mean, four or five days across the winter. Um, but as soon as that storm hits those mountains, it just dumps by the feet. And so the mountain passes will really begin to change the, the geography and the climate there. Um, but this was not a timberland mountain. It, they grew crops and uh, plants. And the water was provided from the Sultan Mountains further to the north. When the city was in Roman rule, it was a very important colony. In fact, it rose to the position of a capital city, sometimes given the name Colonia Caesarea. It was centrally located on the Via Sebast. In fact, if you read about this, this imperial road, the Via Sebast was kind of centered on Antioch in Pisidia, and then it branched out from there. It branched east into uh, Iconium, and then it worked its way over to Derby, and then it branched to the west, headed more towards the Aegean Sea, and more towards Rome, and then it would have branches that would work its way south down into Perga and get to the coast of the Mediterranean. So this was a major thoroughfare. In fact, it's estimated uh, that at the time of first century uh, Roman occupation, there were 100,000 people here in Antioch. This is a large place. And this is the place in which Paul goes to preach. I want you to keep that number in mind because I want to look at a few things as we wrap it up here. Uh, it did have a synagogue where Paul preached as we think about the Bible facts about um, Antioch. Now, we've talked about this. Paul went to all of these places and he essentially traveled to all the places where all the dispersed Jews were. And as was his modus of operandi, he would go into the synagogue and he would preach. This place of Antioch, Pisidia, is only mentioned one time by direct name, but regionally perhaps a few times, as we mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 18. It's not, has a, it does not have a huge uh, continual uh, role in the New Testament. We don't see uh, Paul going back there uh, specifically. We don't read about an epistle to the church at Antioch, Pisidia, uh, though there were believers there, as we're going to see in just a second. Let's look at Paul's message for just a second. Um, We'll pause here in Antioch, Pisidia, and end our lesson for today. But let's look at Paul's message in Acts chapter 13. Uh, look with me in verse number 16. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. I want you to notice, first of all, the location of Paul's message. Where was he? Not just geographically, but where was he? He was in the synagogue. He was standing. They had just read uh, the Torah. 
the books of the law. I actually read something interesting about that in my study for this, that uh, Jews would have split up the readings of the Pentateuch, the five books of the law, uh, in as many, some thought, as 54 sections, and they would read two per Sabbath to accomplish the reading of the Torah annually. And so wherever they happened to be in Scripture, they had finished their reading of the Torah in verse number 15. And the rulers of the synagogue, seeing these visitors, Paul and Barnabas, turned to them and said, if you, if you have an, a word of exhortation uh, from the people, say on. And, and that it was amazing to me. Could you imagine some person coming in today that wasn't invited necessarily, that pastor didn't know, and he said, if any of the visitors want to stand up and speak, go ahead. Can you imagine that? We'd all be gripping the seat back wondering what was happening, right? We'd be nervous. But what's amazing to me is that the very customs of the Jews, letting Jewish visitors share the news from afar, afforded these opportunities for Paul to preach. That was their custom. That's how they got their news. Jews who had traveled Jews who would come from different places, they would come and they would meet on Sabbath and they would meet in the synagogue and the leaders would say, well, share with us. I don't know what they were expecting. Maybe what the latest price of grain was back in who knows where. I don't know, but that's not what they got. They got the preaching of the Apostle Paul, but I thought the location and just the how the Lord was working, even in just the very customs and the, just the very way that they were reared and trained and raised, he was using all of that for their good and for Paul to have opportunity. But you look at the listeners in verse number 16. Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand uh, said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God give audience. There were both Jews and we'll read later as it says specifically at the end of his message, there were Gentiles present. I believe those were Gentiles who were proselytes who were interested uh, in the God of Israel, those that I think they could be fall into that category of ye that fear God. And these were the audience uh, of Paul's message. But then he gets into the crux of his message, um, sharing with them not about uh, the ongoings of Jerusalem and not about whatever was happening in Antioch of Syria, but he shares with them uh, his lesson. And Paul begins in verse number 17. Look at this. He says, The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an high arm he brought them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when they had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he had given unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years unto Samuel the prophet, and afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when they had removed him, he raised up unto them uh, David to be their king, to whom also he gave the testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Paul begins to take their very own history even their own law that they had just read to show God at work in their lives. He leads them from Egypt to Jesus. And we'll not read all the verses. You can go back and check that out. But he starts at Egypt, and then he mentions the promised land, and he brings them through Samuel and Saul and David. And then he gets into John the Baptist, 
in verse number uh, 24, when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John fulfilled this course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes his feet I am not worthy to loose. He brings them up to the doorstep of Jesus, and then he lays it all out for him. Look at this in verse number 26. Paul lays out for them who Jesus is. Look at verse 26. He says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. He's telling them how God has been at work in their lives this whole time, and he's bringing them to this place. He says, And whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of salvation sent. Who is Jesus? He was sent. He was sent by the Father. He was sent to provide salvation. He continues and he talks about who Jesus is in verse number 27. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Who is Jesus that Paul lays out for him? Not only was he sent, but he was sacrificed. He shares with them the death and the burial of Jesus. He brings them to this place where they understand exactly what had happened in Jerusalem. They were getting news from Jerusalem after all, and they were finding out about Jesus who was sent by God, whom John the Baptist had proclaimed, their very own uh, brother, in, uh, a Jewish brother who had proclaimed that Jesus, there would one come after John, whose shoes John was not worthy to unloose, and that the Jews would condemn him and be, beg Pilate to, to crucify him. And, and so he tells them that Jesus was the one who was sacrificed. But then he tells them in verse number 30, he doesn't leave him in the grave. He says, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. He begins to explain that Jesus didn't just die and was buried, but he moves into the resurrection not only does he move into the resurrection, Paul shares a powerful uh, truth with them. Remember why they were there in the synagogue? They were reading the Torah. They were reading the Old Testament law. They were reading the scriptures that they had uh, been given unto their people. And Paul begins to share unto them in verses 33 and 34. He begins to share unto them prophecies concerning the Messiah. Prophecies that the very own esteemed King David had shared in the Psalms prophecies that could only be filled by the messiah that they were looking for but they were looking often in all the wrong places and paul comes and he begins to explain that jesus is sent and he is sacrificed and he is supreme but look where he ends up in verse number 38 be it known unto you therefore men brethren that through this man is preached unto you what does he say the forgiveness of sins and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. He talks about him being sent, the word of salvation. He talks about the sacrifice, the death, the burial. He talks about how supreme he is because of the resurrection, his fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. But he didn't leave them there. He gave them the most valuable piece of information that they could ever have. He says he's the Savior. All this law that you're worried about fulfilling that you can't fulfill, he, he fulfilled it. So Paul's most powerful message that he shares in this place in Antioch of Pisidia, he shares with them who Jesus is. And then he shares one last word in verse number 40. He shares a prophecy 
shared by Habakkuk in Habakkuk 1.5, but in verse number 40 and 41, he says, Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which was spoken of in the prophets, behold, you despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which shall be in no wise, which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Paul leaves them, and this is the place that I ought to desire to leave people when I talk to them about Christ. Paul leaves them at a place of decision. I've told you who Jesus is. Now what are you going to do? pastor's going to stand before congregation this morning, and you know he's going to share the gospel, and he's going to leave folks at a place of decision. This is who Jesus is. This is what he came to do. This is what he has done, and this is what he wants to do. What are you going to do? And that's the question that should burn on the hearts of all mankind. What will you do with Jesus? And then Paul continues. It's such a powerful message that the Jews come to him, or the Gentiles come to him and say, come back next week, preach it again. We'll bring more people. And it's amazing. You can read it in your own time. It says that almost the entire city came back to hear him. Now, how many people did they estimate were in the city of Antioch? Almost the entire city. Thousands upon thousands. We had major events in, in uh, Cincinnati this last week. The Reds were sold out. Taylor Swift was in concert. Uh, FC Cincinnati was playing. There were thousands of people down there. That's how many people came to hear Paul share the next week. And the Jews got mad that all these people would come to hear Paul, and they ran him out of the city. Big surprise there. That's the mode for Paul's ministry. And he sends them on. But in spite of this, look at this, the very last thing uh, we read in this passage. Verse number 52, 51. They shook out the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. So they left there and headed to Iconium, where we'll journey next week. And the disciples, disciples excuse me, were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Some believed, some didn't. And those that didn't, they shook off the dust of their feet, and they left and went on their journey. But those that were left were filled with joy and the Holy Ghost, because who Jesus is, sent sacrifice supreme, and their Savior produces joy to those that believe. What will you do with